Welcome to Nutrition Assessment. In this episode, we have the audio-only piece of today's synchronous Zoom call, in which we talked a little bit of just just a brief recap on um, biochemical values for cardiovascular assessment, and then more time on just biochemical values in general. And keeping in mind that while biochemical values are considered to be objective and they are certainly quantifiable, um, we still need to have a lot of caution in how we interpret those values and the context in which we are um, you know, working with the patient and working with those values. And towards the end of this call, um, we got into our discussion of glomerular filtration rate and whether or not the adjustments that are currently made for race are appropriate or not. And I just want to continue that discussion and just say that was really really the tip of the iceberg of the conversations that we as a whole need to be having around these clinical algorithms that we use in diagnosis and care of patients. So I think we got the conversation off to a good start and I more than welcome more questions on that topic. I can't say that I will always have the answers, um, but I'm more than happy to help in the search for answers because the goal for all of us is always going to be to provide the best possible care for our patients. We are working on cardiovascular assessment and biochemical assessment this week. Um, so do make sure that you have watched or listened or both to the content from Monday. In fact, the end of the content from Monday was sort of an introduction to this week's content on um, biochemical assessment. Um, and biochemical assessment is something that we will revisit repeatedly for the rest of the semester. Um, but we're going to get a concentrated dose of biochemical assessment um, information today. Um, but before we get into that, just a couple quick announcements. We are going to do another in-person lab. And we are looking at the week of October 19th. So not next week, but the week after. We are going to have you guys come in and we'll do hand dynamometer, sit and reach, BIA. I can do skin folds on you if you want, um, time permitting. Um, but we'll have you come in and do those measures. Um, lab this week, for those of you who've already completed it, it's a little, a little bit shorter. Don't make any big plans Wednesday, folks. Um, but it's a little bit shorter because we um, need a little bit of a breather between last week's very long lab and next week's lab. Spoilers is also going to be very long, um, but that's 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 next week's problem. Um, and then also, I need to post on Carmen as well. We're going over biochemical assessment today as part of lecture, and the corresponding reading for that is section three point seven of chapter three of the Nutrition Therapy and Pathophysiology text do be sure that you read that. Um, that's just a really much better description than I can do. I'm going to try today, but it's a much better description and very detailed in terms of each of these <coughs> markers and what they mean. So speaking of referring back to the text and references, um, Allah pointed out that I had an error on this slide from Monday. So I'm going to say this again and um, in lab, but I want to make sure that we're very clear that a fasting blood glucose should be less than 100 milligrams per deciliter. So an impaired fasting glucose is greater than 100 milligrams per deciliter. And for whatever reason, God only knows, 
Um, my slides on the pre-recorded content on Monday said greater than 110 milligrams per deciliter. It's 100. I don't, I don't know. Um, so if you came to lab, for example, and we did the biochemical measures on you, the cholestec, and got a glucose value, and your glucose was greater than 100, and you had eaten in the past eight hours, um, that's, that's fine. That was a random blood glucose. A random blood glucose could be greater than 100 milligrams per deciliter, but a fasting blood glucose should be less than 100 milligrams per deciliter. So if it's greater than that, then we have impaired fasting glucose, and that would be one of the five possible risk factors for metabolic syndrome. So I wanted to make sure I got that good and clear since that was my mistake. So with biochemical assessment, just a quick recap of some of the concepts from the intro piece on Monday. Um, biochemical assessment, we generally regard it as um, the most objective of our measures, right? You've taken a blood sample, you've analyzed it, and you get a number. It's definitely quantifiable, um, but we, we still have to make sure that we're very careful with our interpretation of that value. So if you, if you watch the content from Monday, you heard me talk about how we have to draw a cut point line somewhere, right? So you could still have a false positive or a false negative because the cut point line has to be drawn somewhere. Um, and also a biochemical value in and of itself is never gonna be enough to tell us the whole story. It's never gonna give us the full picture of someone's health. It is definitely one of the many tools we should include um, but it's not going to be the be all end all in telling us what's wrong with a patient or what's right with a patient for that matter. So just important to keep in mind with biochemical assessment that we need to still think critically about what that value means, how much it tells us, what the context is. And a new addition to the slides this year to really think about how we decided we're going to use those values. So stay tuned for that. So some examples of typical blood chemistries. So if you're taking a blood sample, you can sample, I think I talked about this. Did I talk about this? For biochemical assessment, you can sample blood, urine, hair, saliva, um, uh, serum as, as part of whole blood, uh, you name it. If feces, anything, anything that comes off of a body, you can sample for biochemical assessment. Biopsies, you could do a biopsy. Um, and so with that, the most common biochemical assessments are from blood draws. And so typical blood chemistries, things you would assess from blood are things like osmometry. Osmometry would be looking at fluid status or hydration status. Um, albumin, prealbumin, and nitrogen balance are looking at things like protein status, although we're going to talk about that in terms of how much can we really take away from albumin, prealbumin, and nitrogen balance. AST, ALT, ALP, and bilirubin, that would be typical for liver. Creatinine, blood urea nitrogen, and glomerular filtration rate are kidneys. LD, so lactate dehydrogenase, um, troponin, um, creatine kinase, or creatine phosphokinase would be heart, so uh, uh, cardiac enzymes. Calcium, sodium, potassium, and phosphorus are examples of electrolytes. CO2 could also be listed among electrolytes, or it could be for arterial blood gases. And then chloride, I don't know why I've got that down there. Chloride, it should be up there with the rest of the um, electrolytes. So why do I go over all of that? When we're talking about biochemical tests, if I want you to memorize the normal range for something, I will tell you to memorize the normal range for that. 
But for the most part with biochemical measures, it is not a good use of your brain cells to commit to memory the exact um, range for troponin. That's not, that's not important. What is important to me is that you know that troponin is something we look at when we're concerned with heart disease, right? So what I <coughs> why I've got the memorize icon here, I would like you to commit to memory the groups of tests and what that tells you in terms of which organ or organ system we are concerned with. So for example, um, you see ALT and AST listed both for the heart tissue, for the myocardium and for the liver. So if you see ALT and AST, you then need to look at what else is being analyzed, what else has been tested to see, are we concerned with the heart tissue or are we concerned with the liver tissue? So the distinction is I don't need you to memorize the values, the exact ranges for the majority of this stuff. I will tell you if, it, if you need, do need to memorize a range. Um, but more importantly is knowing which um, lab values are telling us about which organ systems. Does that distinction make sense? Okay. It's, it's a bigger deal that you can look at a chart and have a sense of, oh, we're concerned with their kidneys as opposed to looking at a chart and saying, well, their BUN's out of range because the chart is always going to have that number. It's always going to have the, the, the patient's value and the reference value right next to it. So um, I have down at the bottom here, different panels. So lipid panel, heart, liver, kidneys, pancreas, electrolytes, diabetes, and then comprehensive metabolic panel. So what the heck is a comprehensive metabolic panel? A comprehensive metabolic panel is something that you might get when you go to your primary care doctor and they do a blood draw just, just to see how you're doing, just to see um, if everything is, is all right, so to speak. So this is one of mine. This is a, an example comprehensive metabolic panel that I've had done in, in recent years. And you can see we've got the, um, the value over here, well, the, the test, I guess, over here, the value in the middle column, and then the reference range is always posted. It's always going to be right there. We're going to go through most of these today. Um, you can see I highlighted my CO2 was outside of range at 21.7. Um, <coughs> my doctor did not bring me back in for further tests. Why didn't my doctor bring me back in for further tests? Any guesses in the chat? Or you can unmute. Well, I try to stop coughing. It's very close. It wasn't clinically significant. Everything else is normal. Everything else is good. Just slightly off. Yes, all of the above, right? So my physician could look at this and say, well, that's really close to normal. Technically, it's outside of range. So that would be a positive test. If you're outside of range, that's a positive test. But she didn't find anything of value in that. It's, it's very close to normal. So I had a positive test for CO2 and it meant, it meant nothing in this case. This is actually my comprehensive metabolic panel from a couple years ago. I just went to the doctor this week and got my results yesterday. And actually something came back as a positive test that needed further. I'm fine. Let's start with that. I'm fine. Um, but when we get to um, hematology and iron status, I will bring back that comprehensive metabolic panel. Um, turns out I'm anemic. Who knew? I'm fine. <coughs> and 
this is another slide showing more or less the same thing. The difference here, <coughs> Whew. I sure would love to get rid of this cold. All right. The difference here, why is this slide here as well? Um, it's not purely redundant. Basically, every single one of these has a hyperlink to more information. So whether you've got the PowerPoint of the slides or the PDF of the slides, you could click on these to read more about the test and when it is used. Um, so you can use that as a handy reference. It also does have the reference ranges for each of these things. Again, I don't need you to memorize the reference ranges unless I tell you specifically. Um, but that's, that's just there for your reference. Um, this we've already covered basically, um, I have a note, see Monday slides. So a myocardium panel or cardiac enzymes would be things like ALT, AST, lactate dehydrogenase, um, creatine kinase, troponin, and that B natriuretic peptide. If you see this list of enzymes on a person or, or um, ordered for a person and reported, we're concerned with their heart. Something's wrong with their heart. Um, and fun fact, I'm going to add a bonus podcast episode. Um, I got permission from my father-in-law to talk about the time that we took him to the emergency room for chest pain and what that process was like. Because it's actually, I, I alluded to it a little bit in the Monday content, but there's more to the story. And he reminded me of the pieces I forgot. Um, it's a good story of how we went from chest pain to um, the different tests to end up with his diagnosis. So it, it walks you through each of the tests for a cardiovascular assessment, basically. All in a fun, fun little story. So look for that later today. Liver panel, I talked about this a little bit on Monday as well. ALT and AST are considered your liver enzymes. If someone says they're having their liver enzymes tested, that's what they mean. Um, the reasons you would test those enzymes the liver is a major workhorse. It's kind of a big deal in the body in terms of metabolizing everything that comes in to the body, including medications. And there are medications that can be very rough on the liver. So if a patient is prescribed a medication that we know can be toxic to the liver, they may routinely have their liver enzymes tested so that we know how well are they able to metabolize that drug or how well are they handling that drug. Why would you put them on that medication in the first place? Well, so that's the physician's call, obviously. Um, but when you weigh the pros and cons, it may be that the patient does need this medication, but we still want to monitor their liver health to make sure they're doing okay with that. So for example, when my dad was getting chemotherapy, they very much watched his liver enzymes. Definitely needed the chemo, um, but cancer sucks and chemo is nasty stuff. So they were watching his liver enzymes as well to make sure that he was able to his body was able to handle that drug. In addition to ALT and AST, you could see an alkaline phosphatase or ALP. This is actually an enzyme found in the liver, but it's also found in bone, placenta, and intestine. Um, and so you would find it in certain liver diseases or you could find it elevated when the bone is in a diseased state or in an osteoblastic state. Basically, there's more of it present when the bones are trying to build or when the liver is damaged. So the alkaline phosphatase would be um, one you would look at for liver status as well, um, with the understanding that if you're in the hospital for, for a broken leg and you have an increased ALP, it's probably not your liver, unless your liver enzymes were also elevated, unless, you know, you were 
I don't know, drinking way too much alcohol and you had cirrhotic liver damage and then you fell and broke your leg. It's a horrible scenario. Nobody do that. Billy Rubin is another one that we look at for the status of the liver. And in order to um, sort of explain why we look at Billy Rubin, I want to back up and look at the physiology of Billy Rubin for a second. So Billy Rubin is actually a breakdown product of heme. So heme is that protein that helps us to transport oxygen, kind of a big deal. Um, and so it's broken down into bilirubin, which is then taken into the liver and processed. So the liver is going to basically get the first shot at the bilirubin, and then it conjugates it, secretes it into bile, which then goes into the intestine. Inside the intestine, it's converted to something called urobilinogen. Urobilinogen should get picked up, should get absorbed into the bloodstream and taken to the kidney, and it will then be excreted from um, the body as part of urine. So urobilinogen is actually yellow, right? So that's why, that's why urine is yellow, fun fact. Um, but some of the urobilinogen actually makes its way back, or I'm sorry, some of the urobilinogen stays in the intestine and is oxidized by bacteria, bacteria into stercobilin. And stercobilin is brown, which is why poop is brown. The, things, the more you know, the things you learn in this class. Um, so bilirubin should get broken down um, into urobilinogen and then excreted in the urine, or some of it stays in the intestine. It's broken down to stercobilin and excreted in the feces. But if there is a blockage, if there is liver damage or gallbladder damage or something upstream essentially of this process that is inhibiting that breakdown, you can get a buildup of bilirubin in the bloodstream. And what that looks like, um, buildup of bilirubin indicates um, that there is liver damage or, um, well, it could be a blockage in the liver, <clears throat> but there's, there's some kind of damage going on with the liver. In adults, an adult patient with liver damage, the um, visible sign of this will be jaundice. So if you've ever seen a jaundiced patient, they are yellow. Their skin is yellow. The whites of their eyes have turned yellow. They are not tan. Do not ask them where they went on vacation. Um, they're in liver um, failure, having serious liver issues. So in an adult, um, elevated bilirubin means that there's, there's liver damage or disease, but bilirubin actually varies tremendously. What a normal range is for bilirubin varies based on age. So for example, um, in newborns for, um, for a newborn, basically while in utero, the mother's liver was doing all the heavy lifting, was doing all the work for the baby. And so when born, um, very often newborns livers are, for lack of a better phrase, still coming online. They're still getting, getting started. <coughs> so a normal level for a newborn is actually higher than what you would expect for a healthy adult, for example. And if the newborn's age is measured in days, we actually assess bilirubin in terms of how many hours since they were born. It's very specific in terms of what do we expect to see for a bilirubin level in a newborn. So pictured at the top here is my son. This is a mild, mild jaundice and a healthy term infant. If you look very closely, he is 
slightly more yellow than my hand, which come on, he's grabbing my hand. How cute is that? I melt every time. Uh, but more importantly, he is slightly yellow. They monitored him very closely, but he did not require any treatment. So his liver got, got the message, got working, and was able to clear the bilirubin on his, on his own. Did not need any, any intervention. Some babies will need intervention. So this is, um, this is the daughter of a friend of mine. And in that case, if the level of bilirubin is more elevated or higher, or it's not clearing fast enough, then the treatment is to actually put the infant under a specific wavelength of blue light that helps to um, break down the bilirubin in the bloodstream. So exposure to this light helps break it down. Um, and then it is excreted. So very importantly, the baby gets to wear their little sunglasses to protect the eyes from this specific blue light. Um, and then they just get to, get to hang out in their own little personal tanning booth for a little while. That's the treatment. Um, this little girl is doing just fine. So there, there is a treatment for um, jaundice or for elevated bilirubin in newborns. The reason you can't do this for an adult who has elevated bilirubin is because a newborn whose liver is perfectly healthy but just not quite functioning yet is going to get to a state where they don't need the blue light. Whereas an adult who has liver damage, whose, whose liver's um, cells have been destroyed or damaged, that liver is not getting better. In fact, the damage is done. So the distinction there is the blue light works for the newborn who has a perfectly fine liver. It just needs to get started. Um, whereas a, an adult with liver damage is, is a different story. So this is an important one in both adults and infants and any excuse to put a picture of my kids on the slide, I will take it. <coughs> you can also look specifically at urobilinogen. So urobilinogen, this is another, another graphic showing basically how this process should work. Urobilinogen is found in urine. If it's too low, that would indicate potentially a blockage for bile or blood flow in the liver. It could be liver dysfunction. If it's too high, if your urobilinogen is actually too high, that could say that we have liver disease or damage or hemolytic anemia. So hemolytic anemia is a condition in which the red blood cells are destroyed before they can be replaced. So basically your red blood cells are lysing very rapidly and in large quantities. And when those red blood cells lyse, they release heme, which is the first first part of this process that produces bilirubin and urobilinogen and stercobilin. So if the urobilinogen is too high, it could be that we have too much heme flooding this pathway. If there's too much heme flooding the pathway, it could be, could be because of hemolytic anemia. So um, you can look both at bilirubin or urobilinogen specifically. So those, so ALT, AST, ALP, um, and bilirubin or urobilinogen would be ones you'd look at for the liver. And the liver is kind of a big deal. Also kind of a big deal would be the kidneys. So if we're looking at renal function, um, then we could look at things like creatinine. So creatinine is a byproduct of muscle metabolism. Even if you're not trying to build muscle mass, muscle turnover is a, is a normal part of daily living. And so there is always going to be creatinine present. Um, it should be cleared by the kidneys and you can use a creatinine clearance test for that. 
Um, it could be measured in either the blood or the urine. There are different normal values and they, they, they vary by sex as well. If the creatinine is out of range, that could indicate kidney problems such as kidney damage or failure, could be infection of the kidneys, um, a reduced blood flow to the kidneys, loss of body fluid or dehydration. It could be that you have muscle problems such as breakdown of the muscle fibers, or it could be indicative of problems during pregnancy such as eclampsia or um, because of high blood pressure caused by preeclampsia. And if you have elevated um, creatinine in the urine, it could also be specifically from consuming excess protein from meat. So a high meat diet could lead to an elevated creatinine. So it's, it's indicative potentially of um, damage to the kidney or maybe a poor diet, um, but it's only one measure. We need to look at multiple measures to really determine what the issue is. Um, oh, wait, we have good comments on so backing up to jaundice. When I was a baby, the doctor told my mom to put me in the sun when I was jaundiced. How does the sun help? It's actually the ultraviolet light. There's a specific wavelength of ultraviolet light that helps with breaking down the um, bilirubin in the bloodstream. So that was good advice to be put in the sun. Um, uh, although we're a little, little more um, specific with that um, light that they have in the hospital. When my brother had this when he was born, had to do the whole light thing. That was, those were the details. You had to do the light thing. Really, that's, that's all you need to remember, Janelle. That's it. Um, would we look at creatinine for rhabdomyolysis? Yes, that is exactly the word that I didn't want to try to pronounce. Um, rhabdomyolysis is that muscle breakdown. So you would look at creatinine for rhabdomyolysis. Good catch, Maddie. <coughs> <coughs> I'm gonna move this chat closer to my field of vision here. Maybe I'll see it better. All right, <laughs> renal function. Let's keep going on renal function. Couple more measures we need to look at for renal function. So blood urea nitrogen. Urea is made in the liver as that breakdown product of um, protein. So removing that nitrogen group, you get the urea, um, but it's excreted by the kidneys. And so a higher than normal blood urea nitrogen would be indicative that something is wrong with the kidneys. The kidneys are supposed to be clearing that urea. If they're not clearing it, if it's staying in the blood, then we have a problem with the kidneys. A higher than normal blood urea nitrogen could be caused by dehydration. It could be caused by excessive burns. So with that, you'd have a large amount of protein breakdown. Certain medications or a very high protein diet could also lead to an elevated blood urea nitrogen. And then the next one on our list is glomerular filtration rate or um, GFR. You might also see this listed as EGFR, estimated glomerular filtration rate. It's a mouthful. Um, this one basically estimates how much blood passes through the tiny cells of the kidney, the glomeruli, each minute. So it's an estimate. So we have to measure, for this one actually, you measure creatinine and then use an equation to estimate what the glomerular filtration rate is. And so those equations vary and the, the normal values vary by age, ethnicity, sex, creatinine, height, and weight. In general, we can say that a healthy GFR is greater than 60 milliliters per minute per 1.73 meters squared. How's that for unit of measure? 
Um, and then if the GFR is less than 15, that is a sign of kidney failure. So there's a range in between there. You could certainly be greater than 60 um, and you can be less than 60, but not be in kidney failure. Um, but there's, there's definite cut points for where we would say you're healthy if you're above this. In general, you're healthy if you're above this. And if you're below 15, that's, that's, not, that's not good. That's not healthy. Um, but this is one, G, GFR is one that's gotten a lot of attention in the last six months and probably was deserving of our attention before that. So I want to take a minute to just stop and look just at GFR um, in the context of, okay, we have this value, we consider it quantitative and objective, but where does this value come from and should we have more caution in terms of how we interpret this? So this publication came out in June of this year, of June of 2020. Um, the authors are listed here, Hidden in Plain Sight, Reconsidering the Use of Race Correction in Clinical Algorithms. So with GFR, we can look here and see the normal values by age, ethnicity, sex, creatinine, height, and weight. Okay, when I took this class, I just took that at face value. When I have taught this class, I have always taken that at face value, up to and including last year when I taught this class. So, yep, it's different for ethnicity. Um, but it turns out we should be paying a little bit more of attention to that. So all of this is straight from that article, which is posted on Carmen. It's a short one. I would strongly encourage you to read it. Um, and so this table is showing you basically there's more than just the two I'm going to show you. We're going to focus just on the kidney ones. Um, but the tool is EGFR, so it estimates the glomerular filtration rate on the basis of a measurement of serum creatinine. The input variables for calculating EGFR are serum creatinine, age and sex, and race. And race is defined as black versus other. So when I say that there are variations for ethnicity, evidently what I mean is we have black people and everyone else. Why is that? I've never questioned that. So it goes into detail here why it is, you know, how it is used and what the effect of that is. Basically, what this does for a black patient is because of the calculate, because of the way the calculation is set up, they're going to be given, they're going to be assigned a higher glomerular filtration rate than a person who is not considered or not marked as black. The implication of that then, right, so a, a higher GFR means a healthier status. The implication of that would be there's a risk of under-treating black patients for kidney disease or kidney problems. Because if you run the equation and put them in as black, then you would get a higher value for GFR. Okay, why? Why is that? Um, and the article that I've posted goes into the details on this, and I, I think you should read it. There's an assumption when this equation was put together that um, African Americans or Black people have a higher muscle mass. And so if you have a higher muscle mass, you would expect to have a higher serum creatinine, so a normal GFR should be adjusted for that higher muscle mass. But we really should think critically about, is that actually the case? And is that always going to be true? Certainly there are 
people of all colors who have far more muscle mass than I do, right? But is that really going to be the most important piece in interpreting GFR? And this is, this is by no means the only equation or the only um, biochemical assessment that takes race into account. So another example is actually the kidney donor risk index. So we've already established that we're using a, a higher GFR for black patients, and that may delay their referral to a specialist for kidney care or for kidney transplantation. If you also look at the kidney donor risk index, this has a whole list of basically things that would exclude someone from being able to donate a kidney. So are they at risk for um, not being able to healthfully donate a kidney? And a lot of these make sense. So the older you are, the more challenging it is to donate an organ. Um, hypertension and diabetes are both very damaging to the cardiovascular system and all the vasculature. The kidney is extremely highly vascularized. That makes sense. If you have damage to the vascularized, um, that would be important. Um, if the, okay, so cause of death. So if you have an organ donor who has passed away, you know, that's, that's something to consider. All these different things. And then at the bottom, we have race African-American, but only African-Americans. So what this does basically is this value is predicting the, the rate of um, the risk rather of kidney graft failure. So what they're saying is if you're an African-American, your kidney is less likely to be accepted by the, um, the, the recipient of the, the, the donor organ, which then excludes more African-Americans from being able to donate kidneys. And since African-American patients are more likely to receive kidneys from African-American donors by reducing the pool of available kidneys, you're exacerbating the inequity in access to kidney transplantation. When we just said, that by using this EGFR, we're possibly leading patients to a higher risk of needing kidney transplantation because they weren't given treatment earlier on. And Josie, to your point, yes, actually, muscle mass might be a better input variable. And there are some institutions that have moved to using muscle mass in the EGFR as opposed to using race. But then you also have to measure muscle mass. Um, and so this, this is, this is current, this, there's nothing more topical I can give you than this. This is currently being debated and argued, um, actually by medical students at a lot of institutions and by, um, black physicians and healthcare professionals saying, Hey, this is a problem. And so the reason I bring this up is because when I learned this and up through last year, let's be clear last year of teaching this class. I would just tell you that for GFR, the most important thing is to make sure that you are referencing the correct range for that patient, right? So you're looking at the right range for an African-American male over the age of 50, because there were so many different ranges for GFR. Um, and that, I guess, is still true, but also we should be looking more closely at why we are calculating this particular value in this way. Um, Ali, I'll come back to that. So when you're, when you're the, these are some of the conclusions from this article. When you're looking at clinical algorithms, so there, it's easy to assume with the lab value that we draw the value, we measure it, and that's it. That's what the number is. But there are actually algorithms or equations that are often used to come up with these values. 
So when you're applying a clinical algorithm, what they're saying is physicians, or we can say clinicians should ask, is the need for race correction based on robust evidence? Or is it based on, if you look back in history, is it actually based on pretty flimsy evidence? Is there a plausible causal mechanism for the racial difference that justifies the race correction? And would implementing this race correction relieve or exacerbate the health inequities? So let's see. Ali, you're saying if black individuals are identified as having better kidney function, why are their kidneys donated less? They're identified as having better kidney function in the GFR equation, but for the kidney donor risk index, which is a different equation, they are identified as higher risk. So you have two types of racism basically happening in, in two different equations that both impact um, black people negatively, right? So you have one equation that is saying that their, their GFR is actually better perhaps than we, we actually think it is, which if someone's kidney is failing, we, we might miss that fact, right? If we're saying they're up here, but actually they're down here, then we're gonna miss the fact that they need intervention. And on the flip side, the um, KDRI is saying that a kidney from a black person is less healthy than a kidney from any other race. And so they're less likely to be donated. We have, we have two, two awful, basically, this is where you start to start to stop and think, you know, within science, right? We like to think that we are objective. We do everything based on facts. Everything is provable. Um, and it turns out there are humans involved in science, which means there's racism involved in science. And we should be very critical in how we think about these. Um, if muscle mass was the reason, why wasn't the GFR different between sexes? It is different between sexes. When you, so when I was a student, you had to look at GFR and then they would list like 16 different possible ranges and you'd need to match up your patient with the appropriate range for their race, ethnic, you know, race, gender, age, all that jazz. I think electronic health records can handle that now, right? They would show you the person's value and then the, the correct range for that. Um, very good question, Annalise. Why was it assumed that they automatically had more muscle mass? Racism? I, I don't, you know, so we, the, this is a really good article. You should read this article. You should keep asking these questions. I love these questions. These are great questions. Um, basically, there was an assumption that was made a long time ago, and we just stuck with it. Nobody questioned it. They just kept, kept going with it. Um, Let's see, does this line of thinking apply to using ethnicity in general for objective measures like labs? Is there more pushback recently for more than just this value? Yes, Tally, this is these. So the two that I've listed here in the slides are two of several in this article that was published. I didn't have time to go through the entire table, although maybe I should because this is really important stuff. Um, there's actually clinical algorithms that determine how you intervene for um, pregnancy and childbirth that are potentially damaging to black people. And we know that maternal mortality rates are higher for blacks than they are for other races. So that's a problem. Um, what value variables does the second equation use? So this second equation for the KDRI is looking at all of these input variables. Basically, um, when you're donating a um, organ, we have to get a really thorough history on you to make sure that you're healthy enough to donate. So these are all the input variables that basically would count against you 
um, for being able to donate. So if you're, if you were a donor in a car crash, right. And you're brain dead, but you're otherwise healthy, that's fine. If you had a heart attack and died and you want to donate your organs, eh, maybe not because clearly something was wrong with your cardiovascular system, right? So this is the list of things that would count against you for being able to donate. And here at the bottom, we have African-American race, but okay. <coughs> if an African-American donates a kidney, is it only allowed to go to another African-American? No, to my knowledge, that's not the case. But in terms of this article, what they've found is that African-American patients are more likely to receive kidneys from African-American donors. Part of that might be, so here's, here's where we can get into this whole debate, right? Is race a um, social construct, right? Or is there an actual genetic basis to race, right? So what this, this over here, this HLA matching, that is basically looking at um, some genetic markers to see if you are a close enough match to the person you're donating to, will, will your body accept the donate, will the, will the recipient accept the donation? So maybe, maybe there are some genetic markers that are common among African Americans that would show up as HLA that lead to it being more likely for an African American donor to be able to match to an African American recipient but so far as I know, there's not like a rule that only African-Americans can, that would be horrifying, right? Um, but it's, it's probably an, a factor of the potential for maybe there is some genetic basis, right? So the authors are not saying there can't be a genetic basis. What they're saying is, are we sure that there is a genetic basis? Are we sure that there's a reason to believe that these equations need to have corrections or adjustments based on race. And that is a huge, big topic to throw at you at eight o'clock in the morning on, on, on a Wednesday morning. Um, but I did want to address that because this is one of the most pressing issues of our time. And it's, it's another way that racism is um, negatively impacting um, African-Americans and Black, specifically these, specifically just Blacks and African-Americans. Um, and another thing that we have to take into consideration as we look at something like this when these equations were determined or when we came up with the kidney donor risk index, we know that different um, ethnic groups experience greater health disparities and they have poorer outcomes, right? But do we know whether Blacks are at a higher risk of kidney disease because there is a genetic component or are they at higher risk of kidney disease because they have less access to healthcare, because their physicians are using an equation that says that they're healthy when they're not, that they have lower socioeconomic, as a group, there's typically lower socioeconomic status, which means you have less access to healthy foods. So the, it's complicated. And again, is race a social construct? And if so, are all of these negative effects that we see because this group of people honestly gets treated differently or has a different experience than other groups? Or is there a genetic component to it, right? This is a huge discussion, deserves its own class. We have one, it's called Health Disparities. It's in the Health Sciences program. You should take it. Dr. Dunlevy teaches it, it's amazing. Um, but it's, it's, it's a big, big idea to try to swallow um, in, in one morning, but I just, I couldn't let it go this year. I had to, I had to bring it up. There are some hospitals, you can read more about this. There are some hospitals that have um, removed 
the race component from their calculation of GFR. And as of July of this summer, so this article, the first article came out in June, as of July, the National Kidney Foundation and the American Society for Nephrology both announced that they will convene task forces to evaluate the use of race in kidney testing. So that's progress. We're at least gonna look, look at this again and look more closely. Um, but there's, there's a lot to read and to do about this. And particularly if you read this article, which is another short one, I'd recommend it. Um, there are certainly um, black physicians and healthcare professionals who've been working on this forever and saying this is a problem. But some of the biggest movers, movers and shakers in this right now are, are medical students. They're students like you who are, who are crying foul on this. Um, and so that's just, it's, it's important. It's good to know. Questions on that? That was a whole lot. It's a new addition to the slides. Peter, yes. Uh, I think that's great, great information. I can't hear you, Peter. You're unmuted, yeah. but I can't hear you. You can't hear me? How about now? Hello? Nothing. I got nothing. I can hear you. Can anybody else hear Peter? Or is it just me? I can hear him. I can hear him. Um, what I was going to say. Oh, well, you talk, Peter. They can hear you just fine. I just wanted to comment that um, a lot of previous studies that have come up with the recommendations like vitamin C, uh, you have to look at how they, how did they come up with these um, values? For vitamin C, just for the, I'll make it simple, they found a value, decided it was, uh, it was a perfect, uh, adequate intake for men. And for women, they said, well, let's just cut it in half and that's what it'll be for women. Right? A lot of these, these research studies, you have to look at their population sample as well. Right, most of them are, are they just men? Are they just women? And historically, it's been Caucasian men. They use this, they'll do the experiments and come up with their values, but is there external validity? And a lot of them is like, well, we determined what it was for a Caucasian man and then just extrapolated everybody else. I, I mean, is that correct? I was also at a grand rounds on Friday where experts come in and talk about research they've done. So we had this guy come in from Miami, and he's a premier researcher in uh, COPD. Um, and he came in and talked about his research. And the last question that was asked was by uh, uh, Dr. Ingrid Adams. And she asked him, well, what, because you know, he's trying to come up with ways to help people with um, uh, poor lung function, muscle function, uh, with uh, COVID-19 and this disease. And uh, so she asked him, well, will these be, uh, you know, People, uh, people of color are more affected by COPD. It's just there, you know, uh, we see a higher percentage happening in that population, right? And he, so he, he gave his answer and everything. But what I do know is that the, all of the research that he did on that, for the, that he shared on, on Friday, he had a population and it was all, again, it was all Caucasian men uh, who had access and uh, had access and were getting this treatment so how does what that how does that apply to this population, and why would we not then, you know, have a more diverse sample population, especially if we are seeing more Black people or African Americans that are affected by this? Why would we not be conducting research with you know a healthy population of Black people to see how it's affected there, right? So you should always go back when you look at these studies that are giving you um, recommendations. Who is the population? Does it really fit what you're trying to use it for? And always, I mean, you know, it, these are important questions and I, I want you to ask questions and I want you, Lauren, let me know what your mom says. I'd love to, I'd love to hear. 
um, I want you to ask your preceptors. I want these medical students who are questioning their instructors and questioning their institutions to push for basically better healthcare, for better medicine. Do make sure that you always ask those questions respectfully. Um, but yeah, ask questions, be curious, ask why these things are, are happening the way they are. And Annalise, I see your comment. I'm guessing they based the study on males. Would that be the case for, for diagnosing autism? Yeah. Um, so, and actually, Peter, you, you just opened up a whole nother, um, I got sound working. So thank you for that, by the way. Um, <laughs> you opened a whole nother line of thought, which is why don't we have more diverse participation in research? And we can actually look at the history of the horrible things we've done to minorities or to marginalized groups over the, over the years and get a pretty quick answer for why we don't have as much participation from um, marginalized groups. Um, because yeah, we didn't always have ethics boards <sighs> and some pretty, that's, mm, that's too, that's too, mm, that's too dark for today. I can't puppies. We have puppies. No, it's important. Actually, we, we have a, we have a very dramatic history of, you know, the Tuskegee syphilis study of inflicting disease or withholding treatment. Once we know there was treatment because we're curious specifically for, um, blacks. Yeah, Peter. I have a question. So that when, when they're looking at labs, uh, they're, they're, they're in their clinical setting. Um, is there, is there, how, how, what is the level of, um, I'll say this, when they look at the labs and they see a lab abnormal, what is the level of concern they should place on it? Is it transient? Um, same thing with like vitamin and mineral levels. Because when, if you look at somebody's serum, vitamin and mineral, lo mineral levels, if they're low, <coughs> are, are they transient? Meaning that they don't stay that long, very long? Uh, um, is there something could be affected it? I guess it's more to level of concern with lab values and like, is this really serious? We need to attack it or is it, it could possibly change quickly. And that's something I'm going to basically hold the rest of our slides till next week because we're running out of time and there that's too much good stuff. We can't, all of this deserves our attention. Um, but yes, you're thinking at the, you're getting at the concept of like half-life of, of, of a measure and how accurately does that value reflect current status or are there, are there larger considerations we need to take into, 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 to include basically protein status is a big one that we we is on the slides for today we'll we'll do it next week um but that's that's a big one that we have a value and it can be out of range but that doesn't tell us what's wrong there's a much larger context we need to look at i say this only because i remember when i was in their shoes and we would get case studies and you would have these labs that were abnormal and everything seemed serious like oh my gosh this, this is also goes to critical thinking but if you haven't been in a clinical situation you don't realize like, how serious do I take this, right? Here's this case, this guy's got this, or woman, person, they have this, this, and this, and these lab values are this, like, and they're looking at their case, and it's like, well, should I really be focused on that? Because that is the most serious thing. Yeah. Well, like I said, my, my comprehensive uh, metabolic panel came back that I'm anemic, but clearly I'm still standing. So, you know, it's out of range, but I'm fine. Avani, I see you're unmuted. Did you want to add something? Oh, okay. Just no, sorry, didn't, nope. didn't realize it was unmuted. Thanks. <laughs> totally fine. I just we have a we have a we have an important discussion going, so I didn't want to miss any any um, comments if there were any. No, uh, it is such an important discussion. Um, it's and thank you so much for bringing this up because um, you know we should be thinking about this. We shouldn't just be taking everything for face value. So, which is honestly, I, I will be the first to admit that's what I've always done. I've always taken it face value. I've always, and what a privilege for me as a, as a white woman to be able to just say, I can, I can take that at face value because it doesn't hurt me. Um, 
and you know, the more I've looked at it in putting together these slides for, for this week, it, it, you look at this table and it's again and again and again, it's not splitting out by ethnicity, like getting into great detail and, and there's multiple ethnicities represented. It's almost always black and other. And what a horrifying thing to do to say that there's the defaults, there's the, there's the norm, and then there's black. What, what is up with that? Like, that's just, I don't know. I want to comment on, on Carrie, Carrie Saunders thing about vitamin D. Vitamin D is so controversial. Yes, it's a good measure. But, you know, if you, if you go back and look at, well, how is this, you know, how do they measure vitamin D? And there are some tests that measure a protein that's attached to vitamin D to, to determine what your levels are. And guess what? In some population, this, this protein isn't attached or doesn't measure their vitamin D status. So like, and so it, again, is going to determine what test is used and it is appropriate for that population. Are you really getting an accurate measure? That's a great question. And Annalise, to your point, yes, if you're getting all of your vitamin D from synthesis from sun exposure, they need an, an individual with greater melanin in their skin, such as someone who is black, would need more time in the sun in order to synthesize the same amount of vitamin D as someone as a lighter skin individual. So there's there's multiple possible things there. And you guys are asking such great questions, right? So there's there's multiple possibilities here. There's the possibility that yes, there is some genetic component or that presence of melanin in the skin is causing a difference. Sickle cell anemia comes to mind for me, right? Sickle cell anemia, we typically see in African-American patients um, because in a certain part of the continent of Africa, um, sickle cells were actually protective for an infectious disease. I think it was malaria. I think I've got that right. Um, so there is, there is a genetic basis there for, for that one, perhaps. And what this article and this, this conversation is really getting at is let's be careful with our science. Let's make sure that we actually have a solid evidence base for why we're doing the things that we're doing and not just operating off of an old assumption. Um, and that is, that's, I mean, with, with all of our biochemical values to Peter's point, yes, it is a, it is a number, it is quantifiable, it's telling us something, but we still have to look at the larger context. And what I wanted to add today is maybe we really need to look very closely at those numbers themselves. Um, so obviously you can see that there are more slides. I will um, add those to the pre-recorded content for next week. If you have any questions, comments, concerns about this content in particular or anything else, um, please do let me know, but time is up. So get out of here and go to the bathroom quick for your next class. Thanks guys. Thank you.